This is Growing Pulse Crops, and I'm your host, Tim Hamrich. Today on episode 12 of season 3. We do have a nice residual of nitrogen when we've done our soil tests. It comes back telling us that. We do the Haney soil test on most of our ground every year, and they give you a soil health score, you know, based on a number of different things. Carbon release is one of them, and those fields always seem to show higher. Greg Bush joins the show. Greg is a farmer in the far northwest corner of North Dakota. He farms with his wife, Jessica, and they've been growing pulses as part of their rotation for over 30 years now. Today, you're in for a real treat of a conversation with Greg. He talks about what led him to diversify his rotation to now what is typically eight to 10 different crops. Greg is going to share why he has added these crops and where pulses specifically fit into the mix. Greg's also going to talk about what diversifying his crop rotation, including adding pulses, has done for the health of his soil. He has tracked his soil organic matter over time, and he uses a Haney test for soil health, which he's going to talk about later in today's episode. This is actually part one of two episodes that you're going to hear from with Greg. The next one's going to be specifically about his experiences with intercropping, which is another fascinating story all on its own. First, though, Greg tells us more about his farming operation. I'm Greg Bush. I'm from Columbus, North Dakota. My wife, Jessica, and I operate a small grain farm. Uh, Our farm is located two miles from the Saskatchewan-Canada border and about 50 from Montana, so we're in very northwestern North Dakota. We've been growing pulses since 1992, and uh, in a given year, we'll we'll grow uh, nine or ten different crops per year. Wow. Can you list them all out? Can you remember them all off the top of your head? That's a lot to remember. I think I can. As far as the cereal grains, we'll typically grow uh, spring wheat and oats or possibly durum in uh, most years. As far as the pulses, we like uh, peas. We have done lentils and chickpeas. Um, As far as oil seeds, flax, canola, yellow mustard, soybeans. And uh, we always grow sunflowers just pretty much every year. So I don't think I'm forgetting anybody. (laughs) Has the crop mix always been so diverse on the farm? When we first started farming and and specifically when we first started no-till, we weren't. We were a monoculture. And um, we saw a lot of problems with that, a lot of disease. It took a lot of extra fertilizer to keep growing crops like that. Of course, when we first started in uh, 1980, we were following anywhere from a half to a third of the farm. And um, we couldn't continue to do that. We were seeing depletion in our soil, erosion, and land costs were getting higher. So we felt we needed to crop every acre every year. And um, cereals, uh, year in, year out, just wasn't cutting it. So um, we evolved into different oil seeds and, and pulse crops. And And the pulse crops have really been an important part of our operation, especially with their uh, leguminous um, qualities and and the way that we can can save some uh, inputs when we grow them. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, what what was kind of the first step? Now you've got this probably pretty complex system today, but what was kind of the first step of saying like, okay, well, we can't just keep with the monoculture, just with cereals, you know, following this much land. We've got to do something else. What was kind of the first step to 
getting to where you are today? Yeah, I, I guess it was uh, the first non-cereal crop that we were adding was sunflowers. And um, they've stayed an important part of our operation. But it was in, uh, uh, I think it was 1992 that um, our local extension agent and, a, and another individual that was involved in adult farm management introduced us to field peas. And there weren't a lot of choices out there. Uh, they were long vined, late season varieties that didn't yield all that great. But what we noticed was we could grow them and um, we were reducing our fertilizer inputs. And the following year, we were seeing a residual nitrogen in those crops and some really healthy wheat or, or oats crops coming off of that ground. And that was where it really was an attraction for us. Yeah. And how did you find a market at that point? Was there already a pretty established market for yellow peas in your area? It was very limited. It was one of those things that which came first, the peas or the markets. And um, as time went on, there became more processors. To begin with, there was just uh, one individual up in Canada that they were all going up to. We weren't getting a great price, but as the pulse markets grew in the U.S. and Canada, you can sell peas any day of the week now, and uh, the markets are there, and they're not always as strong as they are today, but uh, the profitability has has really improved over time. And over the years, kind of what have been the biggest uh, lessons you've learned about growing them? Well, uh, the hardest lesson was we shouldn't be growing them too often. Uh, we shouldn't be growing them more than one in four years when you're talking peas specifically. Well, and lentils too. We kind of burned our soils out on them. And uh, we've had a lot of issues with different root rots. Um, and as a result, still today, we, we can't grow lentils successfully. But we have been able to grow peas on some of this ground that has a history of, of root disease by intercropping with uh, either canola or mustard. That really seems to help. It seems like the brassicas work as a um, natural soil fumigant, so to speak. This may be a kind of an odd question, but bear with me here a minute. You know, if we were able to have side by side the farm as it looked before you kind of went this sort of diversification route and the farm today, you know, what would you call out as major differences that you would see kind of side by side? Well, what we've seen is an increase in organic matter. That has increased uh, three to four times. When I took the farm over, of course, we were doing tillage and fallowing, but a lot of our soils were testing one to one and a half. And um, as we progressed into no-till, we saw those those levels go up, and we were probably getting up over two to two and a half. But we just were kind of stuck on a on a plateau. Well, then we started increasing the uh, diversity on our farm with again eight to ten different crops, and we've seen that those levels get up over three, up to three and a half. And now we're where we can. We use cover crops. We are seeing some fields over four, not all of them. Certain fields are still in the low threes, and it just seems like. Um, the ground is a lot more forgiving. It seems to absorb heavy rainfall events 
better than than fields with low organic matter and it uh, also seems to carry us through short droughts better than the ground with less organic matter. Wow, that's incredible. I mean, is it becoming more common in your area for, you know, other farmers to kind of take the same approach? It is. It is. There are still a few traditional producers that will do some tillage, but it's way less tillage than we used to do in the 80s when I started farming. Most producers, it's it's a matter of economics. If you can get by with less equipment and less passes in the field, less labor, you can farm more acres. And um, it's made it an economic choice. And, you know, it just makes sense to do more rotations. If it's costing a boatload to keep raising the same crop year after year, I think a lot of guys are just making that decision to to rotate to the crops that aren't as expensive to grow. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting point, you know, as far as your, your thought process, knowing that you grow eight to 10 different crops, how do you weigh the agronomics versus the economics when you decide what am I going to plant in any given field next year? Is it pretty much, you know, what's the rotation because this is a system and over time it's going to serve me well? Or is it, well, you know, those chickpeas are really going up in price this year. Let's try to get them in. How do you kind of weigh those factors? We leave some flexibility out there for, like you say, marketing opportunities. But by and large, our rotation is pretty well set. We have evolved. We were doing a cereal grain followed by a pulse and then an oil seed and then back to a cereal. But we were finding that we needed to get more carbon in the ground. So we have gone to where we're growing a cereal about every other year. I wish I could incorporate corn into the operation, but we haven't been very successful this far north. There are varieties now and and, and there are fellows that are making that work. So yeah, our, our rotation is typically set. That's great. You know, as you think back, what's been most rewarding to you? I mean, what do you point to as a time that you really felt like all of this work you're putting into this, it's really paying off? You know, when you go out uh, on an evening after a rain and you see this ground just swarming with uh, earthworms and you take a shovel and you tip up your soil and it, it's got the texture of chocolate cake and it's dark and it's loose and friable and it's it's not blocky anymore and uh, you can see that that rain that you got has soaked in beautifully that's kind of the aha moment for me what have you noticed if anything that's different uh going back into that ground with the next crop well, we do have a nice residual of nitrogen when we've done our soil tests. It comes back telling us that. We do the Haney soil test on most of our ground every year, and they give you a soil health score, you know, based on a number of different things. Carbon release is one of them, and those fields always seem to show higher. And uh, we've been very pleased. We typically follow with a cereal crop, although we have done sunflowers, and we've been pleased with the yields that we see afterwards. You mentioned the Haney test. What has that helped you with? I, I think you talked about how it will give you kind of the, the soil health score, uh, which is great, but uh, 
How has that helped inform decisions on the farm uh, of getting that? And when did you start getting that test done? We've probably been doing the Haney test now. We were doing it alongside a conventional test for quite a number of years, but I'm getting at a point where I feel comfortable doing just the Haney test by itself. So probably the last four years, we've been doing the Haney test uh, exclusively. They build a model for what they feel under our uh, normal environment, how fast the nutrients will become available to our next crop. And um, it has saved us a lot of fertility costs that we otherwise would have just put down automatically or that the conventional testing won't always show. I mean, it sounds like, you know, to get to this point with your system having eight to 10 crops and no-till, I mean, you you really must be constantly trying new things. I'm curious, what are you thinking about now? What's uh, next on your mind for where this goes uh, next year or beyond? I still feel like we should get a warm season grass in the rotation one way or the other. My wife and I, I'm 60, she's approaching 60. We don't like this idea of harvesting corn in uh, December or January or February, March. Uh, so that's probably out. We're probably not going to go big into corn. Millet is another warm season grass that could possibly work into our operation. But just to try to keep um, as much diversity as we can, you know, the four different uh, crop types, you know, warm season, cool season, grasses and broadleaves. But uh, no, at this point, I, I think we're, we're pretty happy where we're at. Again, leave a little flexibility for whatever market is looking the most attractive to us. And uh, do you all do any livestock on the farm or it's you've basically been able to do all this with crop rotation? We do not have livestock and it has been primarily with crop rotation. However, we have some young neighbors just down the road and a couple of years ago, we had uh, a crop of peas. This this is back in about 2015 when we were still doing a lot of um, monocrop peas. And they had failed because of too much rain and root rot. And they had the adjacent half section and they had put in lentils. And they had failed because of too much rain and root rot. So the idea came, why don't we string a fence around the whole section? Let's grow a cover crop on it. I think the cover crop went in middle of July wet soils so the cover crop grew beautifully through the fall and they moved their 250 cows and calves in on this section of land and um, they grazed until I think right after Thanksgiving and uh, the next year we had it soil tested and we were pretty disappointed with what we were seeing we just did a conventional test not a Haney and it was showing that we just needed a boatload of uh, fertilizer on that ground. And I was so disappointed. So I talked to the neighbor, the younger fellow who owned the cows, and, and he said, you know, a conventional test is not going to show that organic nitrogen in the first year. Only a Haney test would show that. So we didn't have time to do the Haney test. So when we, when we fertilized it, we decided, okay, we're going to just do some checks here. We're going to fertilize at a full rate. And uh, I can't remember, it's like 230 pounds of uh, urea on the first check strip. And then we went to about three-fourths of that, like in that 160 range. And then we went to half that rate, 115, a fourth that rate, 65 or 50, 60 pounds. 
And then we left a, a check strip where we didn't put any nitrogen down. And then we finished the rest of the field at three-quarter rate. And I thought, this is going to be interesting. We're going to see bright green all the way down to yellow, maybe just no crop at all. And we could never find those lines. I wanted to go out and flag them. And I probably could have pasted out and found it by the drilled rows. But we just couldn't see any visual difference. But I still thought, eh, we're going to see it when we harvest it. And um, when my wife harvested those, my wife runs the combine and the drill almost exclusively. So we can do some of these uh, projects. She's willing to try some of these. Anyways, at harvest time, we just didn't see a, a difference in it. Now, there may have been a protein difference uh, that we didn't allow for, but uh, what it told me is that we're probably wasting a lot of fertilizer based on a conventional test. Now, I'm not trying to uh, disrespect anybody that's in the fertilizer industry or, or the testing industry by saying that, but um, I think we could have probably gotten by with half of that rate. And I've had other people that are organics saying, why would you put anything on? And um, I think it'd be risky to go completely cold turkey, even after a grazing operation like that, and go to zero. But I think we can continue to to reduce our fertilizer inputs and to kind of tweak our system. So do you think you would have picked up on that if you had done the Haney test there? We might have. We might have. Uh, time being as it was, it didn't work out. I, I think we had done a early spring test, and by the time we got the results, we were pretty much ready to, to go planting the wheat. Well, how do you keep up with all these markets? That's a lot of markets to keep up with. It is. It is. It can be an advantage in some years, but it, um, yeah, takes a lot of grain bins, and uh, you definitely have to stay on top of it. Greg, I have really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time. And, and it's just cool to hear about what you're doing and the results you're seeing. Well, thank you, Tim. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Well, thank you very much to Greg Bush for taking the time to be on today's Growing Pulse Crops episode. It's always impactful to hear straight from a curious and passionate farmer who's constantly finding new ways to improve their farm. I really enjoyed that. I hope you did as well. And remember uh, that this is just part one with Greg. Make sure you're a subscriber to this podcast so you don't miss out on part two when we talk to Greg Bush about his experiences with intercropping. So I chose a field that was one of our worst for, for having issues with pea root rot. We put a two-third rate, so 120 pounds of yellow peas, with a half rate, two and a half pounds of Clearfield canola. I didn't quite know what to expect. I was kind of thinking I was going to still see the same root rot that we had seen, you know, five or 10 years before. But that didn't happen. It just seemed like the two grew together and uh, they form a, a really good uh, synergy. The combination far exceeded what we, we would have gotten with uh, peas alone. So again, make sure you're subscribed to this show on your podcast platform of choice so you catch that upcoming episode as well. The Growing Pulse Crops podcast series is overseen by the Pulse Crops Working Group with funding from the North Central IPM Center, USDA NIFA, the USA Dry Pea and Lentil Council, and the North Central Extension Risk Management Education Program. 
We're releasing these episodes twice per month throughout the growing season, and we want to make sure that this information stays as relevant to you as possible. So if you're finding it useful, we'd love it if you'd leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And please feel free to tweet us with any feedback using the hashtag growingpulsecrops. We'll be back with another great episode in a couple weeks. 